you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth. We are in a series called Refocus where we are looking at um, the Old Testament, perhaps for the first time, in a, through a Christ-centered lens. If you've been in the church long enough, you probably have heard sermons out of the Old Testament, which have encouraged you to be like some flagship Old Testament characters like Moses and Joshua and Daniel and David and Esther. And um, by and large, those sermons can be bankrupt of really a Christian message because you walk out and you simply say, I just got to be better, do better, try harder. And that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel message. So how do you look then at Old Testament passages in the overall narrative of Scripture and see a redemptive historical thread throughout all of them that points you to Christ? And we here at Providence believe that all the Scriptures testify to Jesus. And that if you're not reading and you're not seeing Jesus and his love for you on the pages of Scripture, you're probably reading it wrong. This is what we call in theology hermeneutics. It's the it's, it's the lens through which you see Scripture. So surely you can preach a message on Daniel and say, yeah, eat better, act better, be a person of integrity. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, none of you can do that. Right? That's the whole problem. We're pretty jacked up creatures who don't have the willpower to change. And that's what the gospel talks about. So we are trying to take a serious here to refocus our minds. And we really want you actually sitting there when you see Scripture you are starting with looking for Jesus rather than a moral hero that you can be like. So we believe every passage either shows the need for Christ, has a picture of Christ, and shows us something about him. This actually makes the Old Testament come alive in a way that perhaps it hasn't before. So I've titled the message today, Longing for a Better Redeemer, and we're going to do a perusal through the book of Ruth. And we're going to talk about this issue of a redeemer. What is a redeemer? There's several definitions of the idea of redeemer. It is somebody who buys something back, somebody who makes something good again, somebody who can free somebody from a debt, someone who offsets the bad effect of things. Uh, the idea of atonement can be found in the idea of redeemer. But it's a pretty broad idea. It, it I think, is basically summed up in Somebody who takes something bad and makes it good, that's a redeemer. Um, our current president ran his entire campaign off of the slogan of redemption. I want to make America great again. I want to redeem it. I want to take something that's not doing well and bring it back to health. And he set himself up as the redeemer and the Electoral College put him in office. And even if you voted for the guy, I don't think anybody would say he's the perfect redeemer. Right? He, he is not the perfect savior. Uh, I am looking for a redeemer right now in my personal health. You know, I just I, as I'm over 40, I just naturally put on five extra pounds a year, just naturally. I try to bike in the summer, but now I'm moving into the non-biking months, and this is where the weight really just starts to pile on. So I'm looking, well, yeah, just wait. The problem is I have to work off a bigger deficit every spring when I get back on the bike. 
So I'm looking for a redeemer. So I've looked at keto. I've looked at paleo. I watched a movie this week on sugar. You know, those ones that said, you know, when you, when you drink a Pepsi, you're basically corroding your insides. And uh, so sugar is terrible for you. So this morning I had a sugar-free Starbucks latte. I am longing for a better redeemer than a sugar-free diet. I mean, that was painful, you know? When we look at Jesus, I think some people want Jesus to be the redeemer, but they actually settle for lesser redeemers. They want, I call them the, uh, the essential oils redeemer. I have my little, you know, box of oils, and based on my problem for the day or my mood or what I want my kids to be better, I pull out that little vial and I stick it in the diffuser, easily packaged, you know, it can pick me up, gets me out of a jam, I need a parking spot, I pray to my little essential oils, Jesus, and he redeems me. I don't need a relationship with him, I don't need to love him, he's just on my counter and he's ready to go. Or maybe my Aladdin's lamp redeemer. This is the Redeemer that I can rub the lamp and all of a sudden he comes out and grants my wishes. That's for the big stuff, right? The new job or the nicer vehicle or the new and improved spouse. And my wish is his command, right? I tell Jesus what I want done because I know what kind of redemption I want in my life. And the best part about the Aladdin Redeemer is he goes back in the lamp when I don't want him around, right? Or there's the uh, Howie Mandel uh, deal or no deal Redeemer. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal here. I'll, I'll do the 52 weeks a year of going to this service thing. I'll chuck in a check every once in a while. I'll try to be a good boy most of the time. And then, hey, you give me blessing and blessing and blessing. I'll perform and you perform. I'll take the grace behind case number three. Redeem me, Jesus. There's no demands. There's no challenges. There's no need for sacrifice. There's no need for commitment. But these are heartless redeemers, and I would say they're redeemers without power. And this is not the redeemer of the Bible. We need a better redeemer. So we're going to look at a picture of a better redeemer, and that is in the book of Ruth. So get your Bibles out because we're going to sprint through four chapters, touch on some verses. I'm going to call out the verse, look it up. I'm not going to show it on the screen, but you want to follow through the passage today. Let me set the set the context of Ruth for you. It is a tragic story. Actually, if the, I think the book should probably be renamed to Naomi because it's not really a book about Ruth. It's a really a book about Naomi. Naomi is this woman, and the story starts off with her name. And she, uh, her and she marries a man named Elimelech, and they're living in Bethlehem, but there's a famine in Bethlehem. And so her and her husband decide to move to Moab. Now, that's on the other side of the Jordan River, okay, on the east side of the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea. And there they sit there, and they, there's, there's, there's food there in Moab. And she's there, and they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. Well, as fate would have it, Elimelech dies. It doesn't tell us why he dies. But Naomi's husband passes away. And here she's got two sons, She's now without a husband, but her two sons grow up, and both of them get married, uh, each to a woman, Orpah and, and, uh, and Ruth. And so they're sitting there, and here's Naomi uh, with her two sons and daughter-in-law, and it doesn't tell us why, but there in the first couple of verses of Ruth, both sons die. 
So now you have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth all sitting in the land of Moab without a husband in their life. And in a patriarchal society, he was the sole breadwinner. And they, you can imagine, now you've been to three funerals of people that are your closest uh, in your life, your husband and your two boys. So they're without hope and they're without joy. And now Naomi's in the land of Moab. I mean, this is a bad place to be. Moab is a cursed place inhabited by a cursed people. Moab is the descendant of Lot. And the reason they're a cursed people, first of all, they started off wrong. Lot basically had sex with his daughters, and there had Moab. Moab then uh, becomes a thorn in the side of the people of God. They lead Israel into Baal worship. They are the ones who hired Balaam to curse Israel. I mean, Moab was a bad place, and they were under a curse. And, and the curse was this. There can be nobody in the covenant community from the country of Moab for the next 10 generations. That was the curse. We can't even taint the covenant community with somebody from that country. So this is where Naomi sits. No husband, two lost sons, two, two daughter-in-laws who now are living in poverty with her, and she's in a God-forsaken country, literally God-forsaken. She's got nothing. So Naomi says to her two daughters, daughter-in-laws, let's go back to Bethlehem to my home. And they're both like, deal. Because they need a redeemer. They need somebody who's going to take this mess and make it better. So she says in verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed him goodbye and they wept out loud. So they're walking down the road to Bethlehem and she's like, stop, you guys shouldn't go with me. You guys should stay back here. This is your country. These are your people, your families here. It's just, I'm probably just throwing a pity party for myself, wanting you to come with me. You guys stay here, get remarried and set up shop. Return home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. And if I got married tonight and gave birth to sons, you wouldn't wait for these guys. So it is, it is better uh, for me than for you. The Lord has turned his hand against me, she says. So Naomi tells them to go. And she goes, maybe God will be kind to you. He hasn't been kind to me. He doesn't really even like me. But maybe he'll be kind to you. And the Bible says they wept with each other. Can you imagine sitting on the side of the road as you're on the highway coming out of Moab and you realize you're actually going to part ways and they're parting ways with the only woman who was their North Star and their comfort and she's leaving to go back to her homeland. But it's almost like the last 15 years in Moab were like a waste. Orpah says, okay, I'll stay. And she turns around and she walks back on the road to Moab. And then Ruth says those words. Quoted 2,500 years later at weddings all over the world. She looks at Naomi. Naomi, I'm not going to go back. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people back there in Bethlehem, your people will be my people. The God you worship, your God will be my God. And, and where you die, that's where I'm going to die. 
Can you imagine being Naomi? Okay. What was this? This was a display of covenantal love. Ruth is saying, I will go to a foreign country. I will leave my family, my traditions. I will become an outsider. I mean, why would you ever attach yourself to an old, bitter, hopeless woman who thinks God hates her? You you ever hang out with those people? It's not fun. And she's saying, I'm going to leave my country to go be with this woman. I'll say this. When your brother or sister in this covenant community is flailing in their view of God, it sometimes takes another person to walk up to them and say, I am committed to you. And I know you're having a hard time right now, but I am going to latch myself to you. And I ask you privately, who in your world is struggling right now that you know? Will you run to them? We think of the great patriarchs of the faith. We think of Abraham and how awesome he was because he had to get up and go to a country that he didn't know about. And he is used all throughout the scripture and throughout the Christian church as an example of faith. Can I tell you this? Abraham had a promise from God. Ruth did not. There was no promise here. Abraham had a spouse and a whole entourage of people. Ruth had none. Abraham had the blessing of God. That means it said basically everybody who blessed Abraham would be blessed and everybody who cursed him would be cursed. Wouldn't you love that? blessing. Everything he touched turned to gold, and if you hated on him, your life would go to pot. Ruth had none of that. She had no spouse, no promise, no blessing, and no support. I mean, if there's a hero of faith, even greater than Abraham, it would be Ruth. So they walk back into Bethlehem. Naomi hasn't been there for over a decade. She walks into the town, and they say, can this be Naomi? Is this the woman who left 15 years ago. She looks a little different. She looks sad. There's a few more wrinkles on her face and there's a furrowed brow. See, Naomi's name meant lovely one. It's almost the idea that when she walked back in, she didn't look that lovely. And she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me lovely. Call me Mara. This, is, this means bitter. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. God has jacked up my life. I went away full. God has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You realize the accusation she is making against the God of the universe. She is casting stones at what she perceives as the injustice of God. Oh, she believed in God. She just didn't think God loved her or liked her. He was doing her wrong, and she was bitter. Now, let me tell you this. Probably one of the most uh, troubling things I have seen in the Christian church in my lifetime has been this idea of bitterness. When someone turns bitter, it's almost like you can't do anything to change their mind, their personality, or their outlook. They have, got, they have a jaded view of God. They have a jaded view of the church. They have a jaded view of other people. The Bible warns you, says, don't let a root of bitterness spring up and trouble you and many people be defiled. I heard uh, one of my friends said, you know, bitterness is harbored hurt. 
It's like I get hurt and I take it like a little pet and I hold it inside. And you know, we, 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 we hurt because of the hurt, but then we actually kind of enjoy the hurt. We pull it out when we want a little sympathy with ourselves and have a little pity party and we'll pet that little hurt and anybody wants to talk to us about it, we'll talk about our hurt to anybody. And it turns into bitterness because the hurt becomes everything. But that the root of bitterness is a bitterness against God. And it usually stems from two main causes. One is this, I had it, but God removed it. Okay? Naomi had a husband, God took him away. Or I want it and God refused it. God said no. I want the job. I want a spouse. I want a better life. And if we have that disappointment with God and we feel that, we, we feel that God, his hand is turned against us, we become bitter. Are you mad at God about anything today? Oh, you might be mad at a person, but fundamentally go down there and you'll find at the root You're disappointed that God let that happen to you. Where's God done you wrong? Giving you something you didn't deserve. And as you're looking for a redeemer, what kind of redeemer do you want? Because essential oils aren't going to handle life-altering hurts. There's no deals to be made. There's no lucky lamp that you can rub to solve this problem. So we have this tragic story in chapter one. Let's move into scene two in chapter two. This is, I would call this, the gracious provision of Boaz. Ruth, in the beginning of chapter two, they're now in Bethlehem, and she basically says she's going to make a bold move. A bold move. She goes, I'm going to go find food. Okay, so this is, I'm sitting there reading this and studying this week going, that's like saying, hey, hey, hon, I'm going to go to King Supers. What's so bold about that? She was walking out into a strange land. She was a Moabitess woman, right? She, she was of the cursed country. So when she walked over to King Supers, she was going to face immediately racism, sexism, and perhaps even physical danger. And she stumbles into the King Supers owned by Boaz. Who is Boaz? Doesn't tell us much about him in the Bible says he was a man of standing in the community. Obviously, he's a, it says he was from the same clan of Elimelech in verse 1, so he was a relative to Naomi. The first thing we see Boaz say is he walks into the field, and there he sees the men uh, cutting down the, the sheaves of wheat, and there he sees the women behind, and they're binding up the sheaves. And he, he goes up to all of his employees, and he says, the Lord be with you, and they say, the Lord be with you too. The first words out of his mouth is words of, of comfort from God. And then all of a sudden he sees a woman that's not on his staff. And he says to his supervisor, who's that woman over there? He goes, oh, that's that Moabitess woman that showed up with Naomi uh, traveling across the country. And she showed up here this morning. Boaz immediately makes a beeline over to her. And he basically says to her, he says, hey, um, I, want you, I, I want you to stay here. I want you to stay in this field. And I want you to follow the women throughout the field. And I'm going to tell all the guys here to leave you alone and not to touch you. And by the way, if you get thirsty, I've got Gatorade over here on the side. You can take that. That's yours. She bows. 
I can imagine there's a tear in her eye. When you've been through tough stuff, and you don't face kindness from anybody, and you've been to funerals, and you've been to family splits, and you've said goodbye to your best buddy, Orpah, and you're in this strange land, and you take the risk to go out there to risk your own life and your own physical safety, and this man with power comes up and basically opens up the kitchen for you. She bows to the ground and says, why have I found favor with you? In verse 10, I'm a foreigner. Why are you nice to me? Boaz says, I have heard the story of what you did for your mother-in-law. You came to a place you didn't know. You left your father. You left your mother. You left your homeland. And I've heard the story. And in verse 12, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Look at Boaz's view of God as opposed to Naomi's. They both are worshiping the same God. One says God hates my guts, and one sees God as a uh, provider, a rewarder, and a refuge. The idea of the the wing is a defenseless young bird, and God is the, the wing that has put his wing over Ruth, this defenseless young woman, and he has become her refuge. I think it's a beautiful picture of someone with a right and correct view of God. I want to say a note to those in this room who are looking for a spouse. Over half this congregation is single. Many of you have voiced to me that you wish you weren't. And this is top of mind for you. I think there's an encouragement here, and I wrote this down. When you are the right person, you will catch the attention of the right person. That Boaz was watching... And he was observing, and he had heard the story. He didn't know who she was, but then she showed up in his field, and he immediately is attracted to her. Why? Because, wow, that's a different kind of person. This woman put her life on the line for her mother-in-law. Now, to you men, I'm going to tell you this. You can't watch forever, okay? Reach out via text, something. you got to make a move, okay? She's in the field. But he was a sensitive man. And what was he doing? Everybody's watching this conversation take place. He's taking the outsider, and he's bringing her to the outer ring of the insiders. And he's doing it from his position of power, and he's bringing her along, and he's saying, hey, you're safe with us. He was giving her his protection and stamp of approval. And in verse 13, she says, you have put me at ease. You have put me at ease the fear in her heart. She wasn't this fearless warrior woman. She had everyday fear just like anybody else. And she says, you've put me at ease. Can I say, this is the job of those who do justice. Justice work, we're dealing with outsiders all the time. And there's this overwhelming fear And our job as redeemers is to go and put at ease the people who are afraid, those who are in distress, those who have been overlooked, those who are suffering. And what was Boaz doing? He was protecting and providing. In in common terms, he was a philanthropist, phileo anthropos. He was a lover of man. And he invites her to actually then at lunch to come eat with him in verse 14 and prepare the food, and she had more than she could eat. 
What is Boaz doing? He's taking a bad situation and he's making it right again. He's playing the role of redeemer. You take what's wrong and you make it right. Well, Ruth had a banner day. She walks away with half a month's wages in a single day of gleaning. 29 pounds of grain she throws on her shoulder and takes home, plus the leftover Happy Meal in her pocket from lunch that she couldn't eat. See, Naomi walked out with two problems. I don't have food for today, and I don't have a family anymore. And the greatest shame in Israel was when your family totally evaporated and was no more. It was great shame. And she was saying, I don't have provision now, and I don't have a family. I don't have a legacy. She comes back to the house. She gives, takes the food out of her pocket and sets it before Naomi. And Naomi says, where did you go? Verse 20, they, she tells, I went to the field of Boaz. And Naomi says, the Lord bless him. This is the first positive words that Naomi utters. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She's talking about Boaz here. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers or kinsman redeemers. I mean, this is like, you know, she hears the story. He's like, bless his heart. He's just been such a good man all these years I've known him. And he's shown his kindness to the living and the dead. What she's saying here is something very deep here. He has not forgot his responsibility as a member of the clan of Elimelech that you are to care for everybody in the extended family. That idea of kindness is hesed. It's the Hebrew word which means covenantal love. It's more than just this feeling of love. It's a love that is covenanted to one another and takes action. And she's saying he is showing hesed love to the living and the dead. And by the way, he's a relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. We talk here at Providence about expensive love. This is that idea of love that actually helps people until the need is completely met. What does it mean to be a guardian redeemer? The, the, the best way I can think about it in, in American culture is you would think of who would all come to your family reunion. How many people would show up? It would be kind of like nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, right? And they all kind of come together in one big family reunion. That in Old Testament times was known as the clan. And you had responsibilities to your clan or your tribe. So let me just give you some of the responsibilities you would have as part of that group. If somebody in your family, your extended family, had to sell some of their land because they went into poverty, it was the job of the extended family to eventually buy that back. If you fell into poverty and you actually had to sell yourself into slavery, it was the job of the extended family to eventually buy you back out of slavery. If somebody killed somebody from your extended family, it was your job to go out there with your brothers and go out there and execute the person who killed somebody from your family. If there was restitution that had to be paid to somebody that was harmed in your family, you would go out and you would collect the restitution. If somebody sued or needed to sue somebody else, you would help your family members sue other people in the court of law and take on that cost. It was the idea is, if you're part of this family, we are all family and we're sticking together and we're going we're gonna to help each other out. And the last rule was this, that if somebody's wife died or husband died, some other man inside that extended family 
would marry that person so that she would have a family and they could extend the family name. So what Naomi was saying here is, hey, did you know this, that in my extended family, Boaz comes to our reunions. He's one of the, actually one of the guys who's in the line of being the redeemer. He's supposed to help make things good again, to take the bad away. And the Bible just kind of goes on and says, so she kept on harvesting from the field. The harvest season at the time of the, the harvest was usually a month long. So you can imagine now for 30 days, she's going to that field and there she's uh, bringing home the grain every single day. And we move into scene number three, and that's chapter three, is the bold request of Ruth. If you start off chapter three, it says, One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you'll be provided for. Well, now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I mean, this is like, woo! This is mother-in-law getting engaged in the situation, right? And this is no like, hey, why don't you say hi to him at church? This is, uh, I mean, I'm not sure anybody would want their daughter going and doing this, right? And she says in verse 5, I will do whatever you say. So she goes to the threshing floor. Now, I don't know why he's at the threshing floor at night. He's a business owner. This is where they actually stomp down the grain, get the husks away, throw it up in the air, and the real seed falls. They gather together. This is the final culmination of getting his crop in. So I'm sure he's probably nervous about, is it finally going to happen so that I can go sell this and make the money that I need for my business, my family? So he's there kind of at night. You can see it at dusk, and he's kind of doing it there himself. And perhaps he wants to avoid a robber coming in at the last moment and stealing his crop. So he's going to take care of the product, and then he eats and he drinks, and he falls asleep by the pile of grain. And Ruth waits until he eats and falls asleep, and she's in the shadows Kind of makes you squirm, doesn't it? I mean, the Christian community loves the story of Isaac and Rebecca. There's Rebecca, just sitting there, getting water out of the well, you know? And all of a sudden, God brings a husband. I mean, I have heard a dozen sermons on that in Christian campus, a high schooler, right? Of That's how you find a man. <laughs> have you ever heard this sermon? <laughs> Crawl into someone's bedroom pull up the covers and sleep at their feet. I've never heard it. I, I do want to say this. Ruth takes all the initiative in the relationship. And you may believe that in a relationship, a man is the one who is supposed to take all the action. That could be culture. That could be American culture. It's not Bible culture. Okay? The Bible doesn't model that type of courtship. Obviously, when she lays on his feet, Boaz wakes up. Can't quite see in the evening light, and he's like, who are you? And she says, in verse 9, I am your servant, Ruth. <clears throat> now, here's something important. She is no longer saying, I'm, a, I'm a, a woman, I'm a foreigner, I'm a Moabitess. She's saying, I am your servant. This is basically her saying, 
I am now closer, I'm in the inner circle, and I am an eligible woman for marriage. And she says to him, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. I mean, she basically proposes to him right there. I mean, that's bold. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Does that sound familiar? Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're a guardian redeemer. If you go back to Boaz when he first meets her in chapter 2 and verse 12, his prayer to her was this, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. Be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. She's saying, Bo, you got the wing. <laughs> Your wing is where I'm going to find refuge. I want to lodge where you lodge, Boaz. In other words, Boaz, you are an answer to your own prayer because I am here. Didn't you pray that God would take care of me? God's got a plan for your life, Boaz, and that plan is me. It's that bold, folks. Marry me. Now, we sit there and go, man, she's just one smart woman and blah, blah, blah. But Boaz says in verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. What kindness? By taking grain from his field? No, when he said kindness, he goes, I heard of the kindness you had for your mother-in-law. Like, you left your country, you left your fam, you left your, your place of worship, you left all that. But now, the kindness you're showing me now is greater than that. That doesn't make sense. What is he talking about? Ruth is not there just to find a husband. She is there to redeem the clan of Elimelech and Naomi and to find a future for Naomi's family line. And he's saying, I can't believe you're willing to marry a strange man you left your country, now you're going to get married to me so that she can have a future? That is bold. She says, I'm going to be the instrument of redemption and salvation to my mother-in-law. And if I get married to you, her husband's line will continue, and I'm going to be a full member of the house of Israel. As I was praying through, like, you know, God, what are you saying to me in this passage? I was like, to me, this hit me really hard. That when you feel like God has called you to do something and to be a redeemer in people's lives and you are advocating for other people, be bold, be courageous. Some of you run nonprofits or you work in schools or you volunteer with refugee families or you working in cross-purpose. You are, you are advocating for the margins. Be bold, be courageous, go all in and, say, and, and, and ask God to take the fear away. He said, this is hesed love. This is the second time hesed is used. This covenantal love that takes action. And then he says this. <clears throat> this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, verse 10. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. <laughs> He's like, you're liking me. You're liking the old guy. And you're not out there at the club on the weekends with those young guys dancing. You're, you're wanting me? You know, they call that in today's terms, the older man, getting the younger woman, the manther. You know, the, the woman's the cougar, he's the manther. My son called his car cougar because he bought a 2003 BMW for 
I said, why are you calling it cougar? He said, because it's really good looking and it's old and young boys like hanging around inside of it. So I call it cougar. <laughs> so he called it cougar for the last year. And uh, he told me before he left on his business trip, he goes, Dad, can you go sell cougar? I said, why? He said, she's old and she's expensive and she's expensive to fix and so I can't afford her anymore. So sell her. I was like, yep, I got it. This old man is sitting there saying, hey, when I, I, I'm going to break down soon. I'm going to be expensive. And you're, you're not going after the men you could get. And you're marrying this old man. You love your mother-in-law so much, loyal to your family. And Boaz is essentially saying, I'll do this. I will do for you, he says, all that you ask. All the people in my town know you're a woman of noble character. But we have a problem. I'm not the guy in line who's first. There's another guy in line who's first. He gets first dibs at you. But you know what, Ruth? I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. There's another man who gets first dibs, and there's no manipulation that takes place. There's no, like, hey, let's go elope, none of that kind of stuff. He's like, I'm going to go through the process and see what can happen. He goes, now you stay the night here. What was he doing? He was protecting her from going home and getting attacked on the way home. He was protecting her reputation because you didn't go lay on guys' feet on the threshing floor and without some rumors being cast in the community. He gives her a bunch of grain, and she goes, and she tells Naomi. So we come to the last chapter, and that is the redemption of God. He basically says, he pulls together the man who's next in line. He pulls together the elders of the town. There's 10 of them. And he goes, guys, here's the problem. Elimelech has died. Naomi's got this land. We need the redeemer of our clan to step up and say they're going to take the land. And this guy's next in line. And uh, he's got first choice. And the guy says, I'll take it. Verse 4, I will redeem it. Oh. oh. No. I'm like that close, right? Crushing blow. So Boaz says in verse 5, Well, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, I want you also to know that you get the wife, you get Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead of the, of, with his property. So if you can get the land, you've got to get the girl too. And he waits for the guy's answer, and the guy says, Then I can't redeem it, because I would endanger my own estate. So Boaz, you can redeem it yourself, because I can't do it. What is he saying? Uh, if i got to take the woman with the property, uh, that means another person, another mouth to feed. There's going to be kids. I've got college, cell phone bills. I'll have to get a bigger SUV, and I can't swing it. It'll endanger my own finances. Boaz, you do it. And he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. That's the idea of wherever your foot stepped, the land was yours, and the sandal ceremony was this transfer of land. I mean, now Boaz has got free and clear validated by the community, you are the man. But then in verse 11, this whole, this whole book takes a weird turn. In fact, Ruth is not even on the scene in chapter 4. Verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing and effort and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. What is he saying here? What is this? 
They're saying to Boaz, you're going to get married to Ruth, and this woman, we want her to be like the mothers of Israel. I mean, on the plane of Rachel and Leah and Tamar? What in the world is that all about? The story just goes to a whole nother level. Why would a Moabitess from the cursed country, now the elders of the city are saying, she's going to be like Rachel and Leah. Do you understand the, the problem there? You see, God is the better redeemer. God has a redemption story going on that has an individual level to it, but it's also there's a cosmic level to it. And that when the difficulties of life come and you feel like the hand of God is doing you harm, you got to know that there's a greater story that's at play that God is working out in the universe. So your individual redemption story ties into a cosmic kingdom story. Ruth, look what God has done in four chapters to Ruth. Here she comes from a widow uh, with no future. And now she's being compared to the founding mothers of Israel. From foreigner to founding mother, only God can do that. And then in verse 13, the Bible says that Boaz makes love to her, and she has a son by God. Do you realize for 10 years she's barren, and all of a sudden on the honeymoon she gets pregnant? Right away with an old man, her fortunes are reversed. And then she takes this little boy, Obed, and walks over to Naomi's house and says, would you raise this son? And Naomi becomes the foster mother of Obed. Verse 16, it says, she took the child and cared for him. We see a complete renovation and redemption of Ruth's life. But this book is not really about Ruth. It's about Naomi. Ruth is off the scene. What does he do to Naomi? In verse 14, the people all come around her, the women, her friends say, God gave you a guardian redeemer. You worried about food and your family name? God took care of the food and God's giving you now a family name. And God gave you this wonderful woman named Ruth. She is better than seven sons. And then God has given you a son who will take away your bitterness. This little baby that you will hold. It says it would revive her spirits and sustain her in her old age. While we are casting our stones at God, you're unjust, why are you doing this? You don't like me. In accusing of injustice, he is carefully orchestrating a redemption story that will blow your mind if you will submit it to him. And God showed that, you know what? He is the king, Elimelech, her dead husband. His name is God is king. That hope died with Elimelech. And, and it is saying here, God is still reigning. He is a sovereign king. He is orchestrating the ups and downs of life. He is the king. And God is now giving her a legacy in verse 17 that is actually greater than her clan. You see, Naomi is going to raise Obed. Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. And through David's line comes Jesus. Amen. 
You see, God was preparing a redemption story for the greatest king that Israel would ever have, David. But then through him would come the hope of the Messiah, which would bring joy and peace and righteousness and freedom from pain and crying and grief and guilt. So here she is, raising David's grandfather. What a challenge. What a what a redemption story and what a legacy. So if we're going to look at this through the lens of Jesus, who is the picture of Christ in this story? Who is Jesus? It's Boaz. He is the Redeemer. He took a cursed Moabite woman and brought her into the covenant community. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, which now talks about the the, the female side of the genealogy of Jesus, you are going to find in that genealogy the name Ruth. He is the perfect picture of Jesus. He gave what he had to make the outsider the insider. Now I say Christ was a better redeemer, right? Because he didn't just take out of his wealth and give. Christ laid down his life with his precious blood of a lamb without blemish or spot. He laid down his life for the bride. He is the groom. Who is the bride in this picture? It is Ruth. And you and I are Ruth. And most redemption stories emphasize redemption from a life of sin. This person sinned and somebody redeemed them. We have Hosea redeeming Gomer. We have the prodigal son and the father. We have Zacchaeus. We have Titus, which says he'll redeem us from all iniquity. This is one of those pictures where the picture of the redeemed is not one of sin. This just puzzled me for a while. Ruth isn't any of that. In fact, she's a beautiful, faith-filled person of integrity. Do you realize before sin ever happened, you were created in the image of God as a beautiful child of God? But because of the fall, we have been placed outside the family and that sometimes when God looks at you, he doesn't see a wicked sinner. He sees an orphan, somebody who's outside the family. This is why the picture of the gospel, I think, is the picture of adoption. Somebody who doesn't have a family, who's outside the covenant community, who's outside of care, and God shows his grace down, and he makes you part of his family. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It pursues the unwanted one, the marginalized one, and makes them his own child with all the benefits of kingship, you are the heir. So I'm going to say this. Don't settle for a redeemer of your own making. Don't settle for the genie, the rabbit's foot, the essential oils redeemer. How pathetic. You know, as a pastor and as elders, we, one of the greatest joys is doing life with people on a deep level. And I look across, I was praying through the building this morning, I was like, Every person I saw, it's like I know like three levels deep in some of their lives or another elder is deep into their life and there's almost every week as elders, we get a round of bad news. Somebody is hurting. You've got a burden. You've got, you got issues with your jobs and your kids and your relationships and your health and your money. And my heart for you is that you would look for the Redeemer a better redeemer, 
a redeemer that is running a story in your life that is tied to this cosmic story and that you would trust him and repent of lesser pursuits of powerless redeemers. And I would pray that as you know other people who are struggling, that you would run to those who are struggling within our covenant community. And you would love your church family through tough times. And then as we look at our neighborhood, you would see yourself as an instrument of redemption. What are you doing? You're finding what's wrong and you're helping to make it right. That's what Christians do. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a closing song. And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up front. And during our closing song, if, if the Spirit of God is working on your heart, maybe you're having a struggle with God, maybe you need boldness to be more bold in where you're at. Maybe, maybe you need to go grab a church member that you think is struggling. and you're, you're, you're already walking with them and you need some prayer. Come forward and pray with a member of our prayer team. And what you're doing is you're asking for God's grace and you're asking him to change your mind to look at the greater redeemer, a better redeemer. And there might be some people here that you're, you're struggling with your, and you need healing. Josh, one of our elders, is over here with some anointing oil. And if you need to be healed with a physical uh, problem, health issue, emotional healing, spiritual healing, he is here to pray as James commands us to do as well. So as we sing this closing song before the benediction, would you come receive prayer and receive the grace of God?